Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. You've heard AM, you've heard FM. Now, tune in to DM Radio, the world's longest-running show about data. Each week, host Eric Cavanaugh interviews the brightest minds in the world of information management. Want to be on a show? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. Now, here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back once again to the longest running show in the world about data. It's called TM Radio. Year 15, folks. We started year 15 earlier this month. It's very exciting. Turned 15 years old, which means, of course, I am 15 years older than I was when I started the show. And that's not as fun, uh, but it's still fun to think about. And boy, have we learned a lot over the years, in large part, thanks to you folks out there, our audience, and of course, our guests and today we've got another all-star cast. Folks will be hearing from Amanda McCulloch. She heads up a data visualization organization, which I think is quite fascinating and very cool. We have Phil T from Moogsoft and my buddy William McKnight from William McKnight Associates, I believe it is. And uh, all three experts, and we're going to talk about analytics. Business is business, and it's better with analytics. Of course, analytics now drives, I mean, almost every mid to large size company companies that are not using analytics in some way, shape, or form are probably not going to do too well because you have to keep up with the Joneses. You have to keep up with uh, your competition. And these days, there is so much power and so much capability out there. You can rent analytics. Obviously, you don't have to build data centers anymore. There are thousands, literally thousands of sales and marketing applications that have some analytics embedded in them. And you have all sorts of different uh, technologies to use to better understand your data, to look for patterns in the data to find ways to optimize your business, to optimize anything from your pricing to your product selection to your advertising and marketing, whatever it is, analytics really can drive better business outcomes. And with that, let's bring in our first guest, Amanda McCulloch. Tell us a bit about yourself and your organization and uh, and your, your passion for analytics. Thanks for having me, Eric. It's great to be here and to be able to talk about this area around how do we actually help empower and enable people to have access to information they can use? Um, I'm Amanda McCulloch. I'm the executive director for the Global Data Visualization Society. We're a nonprofit professional association for data visualization creators and enthusiasts. And that includes folks who are full-time data viz developers and some of the business analysts who might just be building charts as something you happen to do every couple of weeks. And so we are really passionate about bringing together people across different tech stacks from Tableau to Power BI over into data art and illustration to learn from each other and share ideas to help make data visualization uh, that communicates information effectively. And I think that's really the role that data visualization can play in this modern analytics stack is being that way to give a glimpse into the patterns that you see in these large tranches of data that are growing ever larger. And right. they can really make information more accessible to us and be that kind of gateway drug into getting really engaged with and excited about data because data visualization is fun. Yeah, I love gateway drugs, by the way. I'm a big fan, <laughs> especially if they lead to bigger, more exciting drugs like uh, AI, machine learning, et cetera. <laughs> 
And, uh, you know, we were talking before the show, you mentioned Tableau, and I often tell the story that I'm pretty sure I saw the first ever public demo of Tableau because I worked at the Data Warehousing Institute at the time, and TDWI was doing its event in San Diego in 2005, and I was told this was the first public showing of this new technology called Tableau, and so I, would, I was the first one in the room, and I watched this demo, and I was like, wow, that's cool. Someone thought about being able to give away to quickly put together some visualization of data, which back then was not that big of a deal. I mean, you you had visualization capabilities, you had pie charts, graphs, you know, bar charts, and that's about it. And Tableau came along and really revolutionized that. And now there's all this you know, dire talk of Tableau dying or something. And there was an Irish wake that all the ex-employees were hanging out at. And I don't think Tableau is going to go away anytime soon. But to, Amanda, you're an expert in this space. What are your thoughts on what's happening there? And what's the impact for people who use Tableau and want to do analytics? So I think Tableau has an immensely powerful community around it that goes beyond a lot of what we see around other software platforms and products with their hashtag data fam and the ways in which people support and connect and encourage new users. I think that community will live on regardless of what the shape of the product looks like in the future. As someone who uses Tableau as part of my work, but also uses other tools, I think there's three things to think about as we think about what the future looks like for tools like Tableau. Uh, one is how are companies investing in continuing to improve their software so that it functions not only for building dashboards, if you're a dedicated dashboard developer or coder with a lot more detailed analytic skills, but also to serve business consumers. You're seeing other groups like ThoughtSpot spring up that are able to go ahead and allow people to run natural language queries around their governed layers of data. And mm -hmm. that relies on having good governed semantic layers of data. But there are ways in which people are getting to interact with their data in a more kind of human and a more easy to understand way if you're not yourself a coder or an analyst. And the other things to think about around what Tableau looks like in the future is cost. Tableau is really expensive compared to competitors like Power BI. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a lot of innovations happening with Power BI as a platform and a big competitor. We see it in the Gardner Magic Quadrant reports and other spaces that are analyzing the innovativeness of various different platforms and products. And I think that we see a greater demand for tools that enable self-service analytics and what the future of that looks like, what that looks like in a world of AI, where we increasingly want rapid answers at our fingertips is a big question. So I'll be curious to see the arc and what that looks like, but I don't think Tableau is going to go ahead and fizzle out. The user base is too big globally, and it has a massive movement behind it of community support. But I do think that we're going to see continued innovation that happens in the other tech stacks that someone might choose instead of Tableau, especially for a new dashboard tool adoption. Yeah, sure. I mean, data visualization has really grown up in the last few years, and it's a very powerful technology because, you know, some things have to be shown, right? One of my favorite philosophers, Ludwig Wittgenstein, once said to the effect that some things cannot be said, they must be shown. And you do that with a data visualization. And you do that really with an interactive visualization. I mean, I'm a huge fan of slider bars, for example, whether that's, you know, time that's on the continuum or density or whatever the case may be, but have some interactive capability to your graphics. And also, of course, things like drill down, drill across, that ability to really explore your data, I think is very powerful. And there are companies like ThoughtSpot, for example, which I think have done a really good job at enabling that exploratory angle 
of analytics, which is really important to find interesting things, right? You can't, I mean, you can look sometimes at a bar graph and see, oh, wow, you know, so revenue is obviously up. That's a simple thing. But when you start getting into user activity, when you start getting into customer churn or some more complex type use cases, well, you need more than a bar or a pie chart. You need some kind of interactive graphic. What do you think? I mean, I think that thinking about and defining what your goal is for a data visualization is a big starting point, along with who your audience is and how they're going to use that product. We often talk about either having exploratory or explanatory graphics. And I think making the mistake that thinking something is good for both is something that can set you up for failure because the great graph that's on a dashboard isn't necessarily what you want to plug into a PowerPoint for a a C-suite executive. And so I think interactive dashboards serve a key need to allow us to explore our data look for patterns and information to allow us to start with the big picture, then zoom and filter, and then look at those details on demand, um, as was the mantra from Ben Schneiderman, who's a leading professor in human-computer interaction from the University of Maryland, who I think is is still credited with coining the the tree map in Spotfire back in the day. Hmm. But as we go ahead and look at the role that data visualizations play in enabling people to interact with their data, the thing I think that we can't shortchange is that audiences and analysts bring a certain amount of business context that you're never going to fully embed into a dashboard itself. No matter how many reference lines and tables that tells you campaign start dates that you add into your dashboard, Mm -hmm. you have a certain amount of context that you bring as someone who's a business decision maker. And so I think we'll continue to see this need to marry surfacing kind of key findings and interesting points within a dashboard that prompt more questions. A great dashboard shouldn't be the stopping point for where you answer all of your questions. It should be a place that opens up the world to what additional questions should you be asking about your data and about why certain patterns and trends are emerging. I love that. That's fantastic. That's a really good explanation. And I love this exploratory versus explanatory graphics. That's a really powerful distinction because I think you're right. Sometimes you want to explain what's happening. Sometimes you want to enable the user to explore and to look around and understand. And those are two very different environments, right? Sure. And I mean, and how we design our charts and graphs will look differently. I mean, a very tangible example. And I think a nice analogy that I believe Cole Nussbaumer Nafelik first used was around building dashboards being kind of like farming for oysters. You're going to farm for all these oysters, build all of these dashboards to try to get a few pearls, those pieces of analytical wisdom, that then you need to take those pearls out and go polish them into something you actually want to show and display and be proud of for someone else. So those dashboards allow you to explore and find those pearls, but then you need to pull those out and actually refine them into a chart that probably has a different title, like a headline that tells the analysis finding rather than what we'd see on a dashboard where it maybe just says what the metric on the dashboard is, has additional annotations to help give clues as to what happened, why and when, and add additional context. And so as we think about that distinction, I think we can think about how there's kind of a funnel that goes from being able to find those pearls in those analytical tools over into polishing up those pearls and showing those final charts and graphs that really help to showcase the value of what analytics can do to inform decisions. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And and what I like about it is you're showing the life cycle of the process underneath, right? Because you you have an early stage project, you have a secondary stage, a tertiary stage, et cetera. And you're going from 
the initial setup and exploration to the designing of some dashboard that makes sense to the polishing of that, to the presentation to the business, et cetera. And these are different steps along the way. And you have to understand what you do with versus at stage one versus two versus three versus four. That's really, really good stuff. Well, let's bring in William McKnight to comment on that. First of all, my good buddy and a longtime analyst in our field, uh, I think a manager's made some fantastic points. What are your thoughts? And I know you also want to talk a bit about how to justify analytics project and how to kind of begin the whole process that gets you to doing analytics. What do you think, William? Yeah, I mean, I like to uh, define terms when we begin. And analytics, let's let's face it, it's one of those terms that we're not all in agreement on what it means. So I like to think about analytics as something that is not a shallow query like, oh, what were my sales last month or something like that, maybe what's the trend of sales, but what do we do with that information? So analytics to me go deeper. They require multiple data sets to come together and create something that has value across the enterprise, something like customer lifetime value. These things are difficult sometimes for the organization to agree on the calculation for, maybe there's multiple but at least it's somewhere. These analytics are somewhere driving deeper value into the applications so the applications can achieve higher return on investment. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense too. And you know, we've been in this business for a long time now. I've been covering it for over 20 years since back in 2001 when I started working for a BI consultancy. And a lot has changed. And I think maybe one of the challenges for organizations out there is being able to know where they should go now with their current budget, with their current needs, with their current data, because everything is changing. I mean, you look at this talk about Tableau fading somewhat, other technologies coming around. Microsoft, of course, with Power BI has really surpassed a lot of these different sort of uh, pure play vendors uh, just because it's everywhere, because everyone uses it. And of course, Excel is still the number one (laughs) tool, I think, used for uh, for analyzing data. But what's your advice to companies to to figure out where they should go and how much time and effort they should invest in something. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the thing to think about is have an architecture plan, uh, have a mm-hmm. real a real layout of all your data stores that you want, that you have and that you want in the next three to five years, and then maybe even a longer term one as well. And as you make decisions for projects uh, to, to to build the stacks out for projects, You want to think about how can I take that and drive into the architecture that I want? So maybe this project, it's the time to start doing machine learning. This project, it's the time to bring on that data catalog that we know we need. Some of these projects have to bite the bullet for the organization and for the greater good. But the problem is not a lot of enterprises are investing for that long term. They want to see the short-term ROI. So the the trick there for the the analytics leader in an organization today is to prove out the ROI within applications of doing these things that you know are good for the long haul, but doing it in a scalable way so that other applications can benefit from it. That's a really that's a really good point. And you know, every organization is going to be different. Um, but I love that you're pointing out the importance of an architecture and really thinking through all of this. You know, we talk a lot about future proofing things. And in fact, our TV show, show is called Future Proof, uh, which is really all about how in a few years you'll look around and see proof of what the future was when it was being designed. Right. That's the uh, the clever take we have on that. 
but uh, you make a really good point. And in the applications too, right? We always have to keep our eye on the ball. What do we want this stuff to do? How is it going to help us? Where does it improve things? And of course, the closer you get to the transactions, the better, right? What you kind of want is that operational analytics and you want to be giving suggestions to customer service people, sales people, marketing folks, whatever it is, in the environment where they do their work every day. What do you think, William? That's right. That's absolutely right. I think the environments of the future, say 10 years from now, are going to look quite different from the architectures that we have out there today. There Mm -hmm. may not be as much need for the redundancy of data, copying that data into data lakes and data warehouses and so on. We might have the processing power with artificial intelligence to reach out into multiple data sets, create analytics on the fly, figure out what to do with them, and actually automatically bring that into our operations. And that's where I see the future going. And that's why all projects that I see and touch, I want to talk about the AI component of that And how can we do what we're trying to do, what we're trying to ultimately accomplish better with AI? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I I think, you know, as we give advice to our friends out there in the working world, uh, you just have to kind of understand what data you have, what projects are you going to roll out first, and then be flexible about all that as time goes by. Right, William? Yeah, absolutely. Flexibility is key and being opportunistic is key as well. And you also have to acknowledge that Not all projects are targeting ROI. A lot of them are strategic in nature. You want to establish a foothold in a new territory. You want to establish better customer loyalty and so on. These are for strategic reasons. But a lot of that, if you look behind the the title of the project and you look behind the quick summary, it does drive to ROI somewhere. So always keep that in mind as you are crafting and as you are building out applications within your enterprise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is one of the, the hot topics that I see out there, and, and it's really quite exciting, is that we're getting more and more of a, a focus on building analytics-driven applications. So not just having an analysis on a dashboard somewhere, but really baking the analytics into the app itself. Yes. And that, of course, requires, a, a, you know, in some cases, replatforming. It's, you know, it's kind of hard to do that in the old legacy systems. But guess what? Now we have this whole new generation of enterprise solutions built on container orchestration That's like right, Kubernetes, yeah. which allows you to sort of infuse these sort of things. It's very exciting. I mean, there are a whole bunch of uh, new companies coming out in the market with analytic databases and analytic uh, approaches to building applications. But folks, don't touch that dial. We'll be right back in just a moment. You're listening to the longest running show in the world about data. It's called DM Radio. Business is business, and it's better with analytics. We'll be right back, folks. Stand by. What's the longest-running show in the world about data? DM Radio. Since February of 2008, DM Radio has broadcast each week, bringing you the brightest minds of the information economy. From artificial intelligence to big data, cloud computing to digital transformation, we cover the topics and technologies that are shaping the modern world. Want to be on a show? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. That's info at dmradio.biz. Tune in, brush up, and sound off. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right. 
right, folks, back here on DM Radio talking all things analytics today. We're already off to a great start. Fantastic commentary by Amanda McCulloch of the Data Visualization Society and also our good buddy William McKnight from McKnight and Associates. And we have Phil T. next of Moogsoft. Phil, tell us a bit about yourself and what you folks are doing at Moogsoft to spread the word about the power of analytics. Yeah, hi, uh, and, and and thanks for inviting me on. So, you know, Phil T, I'm one of the founders and uh, the CEO of uh, Moogsoft. We kind of established this space in observability and monitoring called AI Ops. And I guess the the link up with this is is what we realized in this um, uh, area of the market is to really deliver availability outcomes for our customers. You absolutely have to go deeper into the data than just, you know, the traditional tools that kind of really just focused upon sort of filtering and uh, aggregation of data into dashboards and lists and so on and so forth. And so we really pioneered the use of AI and machine learning to surface the insights in what it tends to be a very high volume, very high data rate environment in monitoring to provide that kind of real-time perspective as to, you know, where the threats exist uh, the operational risk exists when you're trying to manage digital infrastructure and solve for availability. And that market, we've been around 10 years. You know, that market is now, you know, growing wow. to 20%, you know, a year is $10 billion, you know, worldwide. It's it's kind of an exciting space. That's very cool. So AI ops, just for the benefit of our audience out there, is, is really interesting space, artificial intelligence operation. Thank the folks in DevOps. For, uh, for kind of getting us there, right? They were the first and then data ops and now ML ops and AI ops and all this stuff. And it's it's the workflow around these things that really matters because it's high intensity work. It's typically expensive in terms of both the software and the, the soft cost, if you will, of people doing stuff. Uh, so I'm curious to know, like what sort of information are you pulling in to be able to surface these insights? That's a very interesting approach. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, traditionally the data is monitoring data. So, you know, it's it's kind of application logs, um, mm-hmm. alerts from other systems. You know, there's usually a, you know, continuous stream of um, uh, metric data around the health of, uh, of the underlying infrastructure, um, which is one of the things that makes Microsoft a little bit unique in the sense that we cover all of that telemetry. Um, but when we talk about high volume, we're talking about thousands to hundreds of thousands of data points a second uh, in a large scale environment. And, you know, buried in there, you know, is the signal of, you know, a few hundreds, maybe a few thousands of things that people need to go do about. So the data is fairly um, low information quality. And I suppose our uh, use of AI and ML is really to try and sort of boost that signal and sort of give the visibility as to where people need to operate. You know, it's kind of interesting as well, sort of listening to to your other guests, because some of, um, you know, the the angle of trying to understand what that signal is, is also made worse because the dimensionality of the data, I don't know whether that, that term sort of resonates with people, but, you know, typically there are many, many, many different attributes around the health of an individual component of a digital infrastructure. So it's got high dimensionality and you need to know what's important in there to be able to infer, you know, causality out of that data. And mm-hmm. then the visualization becomes important. Yeah, that's interesting. And so, you know, I, I referenced this new era in enterprise solutions 
underpinned, of course, by Kubernetes, by container orchestration, yeah. which was an absolutely brilliant move. I just learned, in fact, on a show earlier this week that OpenShift is also just Kubernetes. <laughs> I'm like, okay, fair enough, guys. Why not? Um, but it's a big deal. It's a very different environment, but also the amount of data now that you can capture, the the number of different systems spinning out log files, as you suggest, has just exploded. And yep. so you have a whole new world now of possibilities, but also challenges of making sense of all this stuff. And it sounds to me like you're focused on being able to track all of those different sources. And of course, AI is good at surfacing patterns that would not be readily apparent to the to the human eye, right? So yeah. is, is that kind of your angle is that, hey, the world is getting very complex and we need to be able to track all these things and look for covariance among them to be able to even begin to figure out what's going on. What do you think? That's absolutely spot on. Uh, you know, we're at the stage where, you know, when the data comes to us, you don't know what questions to ask. Like right. building a dashboard would be difficult because you wouldn't know what data. Right. Uh, Kind of right. Important to put there. And, you know, I'm sort of born in mind of, um, you know, it's a very famous free economics example, you know, where, you know, there's a direct correlation between the number of Nicolas Cage movies watched in a year and the number of people that drown in swimming pools. You kind of <laughs> want to avoid that mistake, um, you know, by being able to tease out the correct correlation. And I've got to tell you, I mean, we, we use um, a lot of what I would describe as fairly cutting edge um, machine learning techniques to spot those patterns that, you know, frankly, you know, the human eye uh, is not really capable of doing just because of the size of the data set and the dimensionality. Right. Sure. Yeah, that's fascinating. Graph technology comes in handy in situations like that. I'm not sure if you're using any graph or is there anything graph like underneath the covers over there? Well, funny you should say that. Um, <laughs> but uh, one, one of the things that Moosoft is immensely proud of is our research connections we um you know conduct primary research with uh you know university of sussex in the uk oxford in the uk arizona state university in the us um and and queen mary many others and you know one of the things that we invented is a way of analyzing the graph of dependencies um mm. in in a digital infrastructure to spot um sort of hidden important nodes if you will mm -hmm. uh, so the bits of the dependencies where it's going to have a disproportionate impact if you get a failure there on the outcome. And this is kind of a series of, of, of journal articles that were written and some fundamental research that was done. So, yeah, graphs are right at the core. Um, but, uh, you know, for somebody like myself, I mean, I'm, a you know, an ex-recovering theoretical physicist. So, you know, anything oh, kind of, you know, data, math, uh, you know, graphs, uh, models kind of, um, you know, gets me excited, uh, you know, in a perhaps a very unusual way <laughs> that's okay we like that kind of passion and i have a, the uh, same unusual tendencies i think uh, and it's really quite fascinating to see because again there's so much more data that you can pull these days all these machines are talking to each other and being able to kind of tap into that and there are lots of different ways you can solve it i mean uh, one of the cooler companies i came across years ago was a company called um of course it's going to slip my mind now um but they do uh, what they do is they access your network data and then recreate that environment. So you can see all the different systems that are inside and use that to do some uh, some analysis. Right. And we're getting incredibly complex systems these days, thanks to Kubernetes. But, you know, so it is more durable. But the security concerns are all over the place, right? And so um, what you're doing, I think, is really helping to buttress a growing industry. Is that about right? 
Yeah, that's right. And, you know, actually, you know, the mention of Kubernetes and container technology, I mean, the other aspect of this is the, you know, the time axis. I mean, you know, the, the infrastructure changes, uh, you know, back in the day, uh, you know, when you went and discovered a network, uh, you know, you're pretty sure that it was still going to be looked like um, you measured it on day one and day 10. Now it's second to second that things change. And so you really need to 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 be able to analyze on the fly. And I perhaps make one other comment, if I may, um, because the other importance of this is avoiding the need to data lake, um, mm. and the sort of unnecessary storage of data. And the reason why people should worry about that is the carbon footprint of storing data in the cloud. 1.4 gigabytes of data stored for a year in the cloud has the same carbon footprint as a single ticket from Amsterdam to JFK. Mm. Wow. Well, Extra Hop, by the way, is the company, Extra Hop. Yeah, um, and a great company. I know the founders. Yeah, and so you bring up an excellent point here uh, about not needing to build a data lake, right? And that, that kind of speaks to another whole really significant shift in the marketplace. And maybe after I'll throw this at you and we'll get Amanda back into the conversation here, but streaming data versus persisting data, technologies like Kafka, for example, and Flink and Pulsar, and there's this Red Panda out there these days. It's a whole different way of looking at it. That's not a small change. I'll throw it real quick over at you, Phil. That is a fundamental paradigm shift about how you view data and how you use data. What do you think? 100% 100% total paradigm shift. And, you know, I mean, I, I played the green card, but you don't have to play the green card because at the end of the day, you also um, have to pay for that storage. Right. So, you, know, uh, you know, ecology and efficiency are two E words that kind of are joined at the hip. And, you know, it's kind of important to shift that mentality as well because the other thing with streaming data you get is real-time insights. Right. And, in, you know, it's kind of right. almost tried to say, but in today's world, you know, a, a second is an empire. You know, that's it's just as simple as that. That's a great quote. A second is an empire. Let me throw it over to Amanda to to comment on, because uh, data visualization affects all the or, or or elucidates all of these things, right? Have you played around at all with streaming data? What are your thoughts on that? So I think one of the challenges we face sometimes in setting up ways that people can engage with visualizations of information is figuring out where that frequency of information is valuable and value add to a business versus where you actually are looking more for snapshots or other uh, things that are more related to traditional reporting and looking retrospectively at your data and information on a different time scale. If I'm someone running a massive e-commerce website and minutes of downtime of my website matters, I want instant analytics, knowing and understanding web performance and knowing where people are being cut out of a sales funnel and not able to complete a transaction so I can rapidly make a fix on my website because there are tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of implications in terms of revenue for those kind of organizations, depending on what you're selling and how long you're down. On the other hand, you sometimes hear people, clients asking for, I want a dashboard with real-time analytics of things like um, overall traffic patterns to a website. That might be interesting in the short term, but what you're really trying to answer the business question is around kind of where was the traffic for this campaign coming from or something that's going to inform a larger digital strategy down the road. We're looking at snapshots of data over a longer period of time actually better enables you to answer those questions. So I think we need to line up the granularity and speed and frequency of our data with what the business questions are that we're trying to answer and recognize that displaying real-time streaming analytics can come at a performance cost if you don't really consider that as you're building a dashboard type product or platform. And so considering performance and rendering time matters 
the pretty shiny visualizations you see on Tableau Public that have all this data densification and complex geometries to them don't work really well in a production environment where you want to see rapid insights that you can slice, dice, and filter. Yeah, what, what excellent points. Phil, you want to comment on that real quick? Yeah, well, it's funny because the, the thing that was going through my mind, you can imagine a graph of the distance between, you know, Buenos Aires and Cape Town. If you wanted a, you know, a one-second granularity on that, it's going to be a very boring graph. But if you're looking at over a couple of hundred million years with a granularity of five million years, it's going to move, you know. So you've got to get, you know, you've got to get your cadence and your data. You know, it's about aligning the tool um, to the intrinsics and the physics of uh, what is going on with the data set. Yeah, and I think Amanda really spoke to the importance of keeping a business focus. What are we trying to accomplish here? And that's something that you have to reevaluate you know, daily these days, it seems to me, because some things you're going to recognize, oh, wait, you know, it's a weekly pattern. We want to understand where that weekly pattern is. You want to look for these leading indicators. You want to watch out for lagging indicators, for example. And goodness gracious, these days, things move so quickly because the markets move quickly because like environmental issues can change a business's perspective very, very quickly, whether that's the earthquake that took place in Turkey that is just catastrophic or the war in Ukraine, oil prices, all these things, inflation, which is shot up. I mean, these are all factors that significantly impact how you make decisions in your company. And so, William, maybe I'll throw it over to you to comment on. It's really important to have that flexibility, that agility in your analytics environment to be able to pivot. No, I mean, uh, not hats off, I guess, to power pivot, right? To be able to go here and then look over there and then look back over here. You want to be able to pivot pretty quickly and, and still get good quality data, right, William? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is why we still have to have uh, humans in the loop, right? Because yeah. there's so many variables uh, to deal with. Um, however, um, I like what Amanda was saying about the the cost value proposition of real-time data. But I think a lot of organizations will look at that and go, well, we don't have that because you know we don't act in real time. And I think that's the issue right there, because I think usually the value is there for analyzing data in real time. So it's really a matter of sharpening the tools and figuring out, okay, how do we make value out of that kind of data and working with analysts from, you know, data professionals working with analysts to figure out where the value comes, what kind of decisions are we going to make based upon that real time data that really change things and can show an ROI even down at low levels of, of, you know, transactions. So mm -hmm. down at the minute level, you know, you can make changes and it can show an ROI even at that level. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good point. And uh, it all depends on the business. So, again, and I I've long advocated for an information strategy group within an organization to constantly be looking at new sources of information that you can use both internal and external. You can just purchase third party data these days. That's a huge movement, certainly around all the location data. I mean, that's a lot of times what these companies are selling. So your phone, when it asks you, oh, can we use your location while you're using the app or, you know, anytime for me, it's always while I'm using the app, I don't want you tracking me all over the place. But even then, sometimes you don't even know, you can tell it not to track and it still is tracking. So that uh, gets deeper into a, a different conversation, I suppose. But folks, don't touch that dial. We'll be right back talking to these three experts all about the power of analytics. You are listening to DM Radio. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, 
Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, welcome back to DM Radio, talking all things analytics and uh, and related technologies. A fascinating discussion today. We're talking to Amanda McCulloch from the Data Visualization Society, Phil T. from Moogsoft, and my buddy, William McKnight. And William, I'll throw it over to you. This has been a great conversation. I mean, I, I just love talking about this stuff. And uh, it really does speak to the importance of knowing what you're trying to accomplish and, and having an open mind, too, about how you find things. You know, Amanda mentioned explanatory versus exploratory graphics or visualizations. I'm a big fan of the exploratory. I mean, I just love to learn and kind of wander around and look at stuff. And that requires performance. That requires interactivity. It requires speed. You don't uh, want to have to just throw something over the wall to IT to fix some pipeline and come back next week and continue your exploration. You want to do it right now. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Uh, most of the architectures we're putting in place are real-time architectures. So that means that data is being analyzed in real time uh, at volume, at enterprise scale, and uh, integrated too. Uh, so a lot of different data sets are coming together to form the analysis that is being used uh, in real time for an enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's uh, again, it kind of gets back to horses for courses, as my old co-host used to say. You you need to know what your business is doing. I mean, here, here's just one random thing I'll throw out there. I've been told by a lot of these data visualization folks that one thing the tools don't do very well is report on who's using the tools, how much. And that's a really important thing to know. So these days, kind of monitoring application usage by individual, by team, that's pretty important, especially if you're dealing with licenses. I mean, I think one of Tableau's challenges was that it's been around for a long time. So you have all these different versions of Tableau and all these different licensing arrangements. And I think the cloud is finally starting to kind of push back on that stuff because for the longest time, pricing was hard as hell to do in enterprise software. It was all about, well, how much does it cost? I don't know how much you got. What's your pain? And I think we're finally moving away from that. But what do you think about the importance of simplicity in terms of what you charge and how you monitor usage and all that kind of fun stuff? So I'm I'm all about that. And I run a lot of total cost of ownership and return on investment calculations for enterprise clients as well as uh, software tools uh, in the market. So it is important to figure out what these what you're trying to do with these tools and where you're going to get the returns. And you can't just say exploratory and everything and we don't know. There's a few <laughs> things that you might learn. And those those few things will translate into something that drives the bottom line. And that's where you got to hang your hat on when you're trying to justify some of these projects internally. But you know, the last thing I'll say on this is that we all think that the cloud has made things a lot simpler and in a lot of ways it has, but the pricing component, now that we are being exploratory and spitting up things very right. fast, is much more complicated. And people are doing a much worse job at anticipating their budget, at projecting the costs of these things. We're, usually we're under out there. Uh, and so that is leading to a lot of organizations saying, we want to be sure about this. We want some repeatability. We have to do an annual budget cycle. We can't just say, you know, whatever it is and however big it gets, that's what we'll pay for it. We need an annual annual budget cycle. So we need to do good still with our projections of what the cloud's going to cost. Yeah, that's a good one. I'll throw it over to Amanda. You kind of hinted at this earlier about how there are cheaper alternatives to Tableau. It does become expensive over time. Uh, of course, the Microsoft 
argument has always been death by a thousand cuts, right? Because they get you a little bit all over here, everywhere. It's a difficult thing to manage, right? I mean, we need a visualization just on the cost of visualization. What do you think, Amanda? <laughs> That's an interesting question on the visualization of the cost of visualization. Because I think that the tech stack is just one piece of it, right? Right. So if we think about right, it, I think right. the point that William made about total cost of ownership and how do we think about that big bucket? I can totally understand a CIO's office coming over to a team who says, I really want to adopt a new BI tool. And they say, well, we've got Power BI already built into our agreement, basically. Prove to me it can't do what you need. Right. And I think that that's kind of the bar you're up against when you're looking at a big enterprise tool like a Microsoft-based tool that can do a lot of the things that you need and arguably has a really great data model and way of working with data that can be more intuitive to folks who understand kind of legacy data architecture. I think as we think about total cost of ownership, though, and what that looks like, you also have to think about things like training time, which mm. tools are people already accustomed to using and have right. to put in, what would be the cost of migrating and moving all of your kind of shadow BI that's happening at your organization with these <laughs> one-off licenses over onto one centralized shared platform. And all of those things are worth doing to have a more kind of central source of truth. But I do think that as we look at what the future looks like for visualization and analytics and how that gets used in a business context, we have to think about that total cost of ownership to include the cost for, for people, for the training, the time, the migration, and not just on the licensing costs that come up. And, yeah. on, use of, and on use, to your point on, use, on people's usage of tools, not just the tools of what's being used to build things, but what's being used to, build, to view them. Server um, views, things where you're seeing who's actually accessing the dashboards. You want to build things that delight people. And I think we should be better investing in how we help train people who are building dashboards and tools to serve up those kind of delightful user experiences that reduce the friction between my ability to enter into a dashboard and find the answer that I need. And I don't think that that's something we still do very well. Yeah, you use one of my favorite words too, friction. One of my soapbox issues is morale. And that uh, morale is the number, I say it's the most important characteristic of any organization because when morale is high, good things happen. When it's low, bad things happen. And it doesn't really matter how much money you have or resource or whatever. Morale is the key and friction points unresolved lead to frustration, which lowers morale. And I'll throw it over to, to Phil to comment on as a, as a recovering astrophysicist. Uh, you're not afraid to tackle massive really mind-blowing challenges, which is fun because you're like, let's just go, baby, into the breach and see what we find. Uh, what do you think about all that, Phil? Yeah, it's, you know, the whole pricing transparency thing, I think, is 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 super uh, important out there, uh, particularly as people adopt cloud. Um, you know, I, I'm reminded of a sort of a, a story. I don't want to attribute it because, you know, um, it's a little scandalous. But a, 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 an ex-colleague of mine a million years ago he was associated with a very large telecommunications company, you know, disclosed that they used to have on staff a team of people whose job it was, was to make your cellular bill incomprehensible. So you can <laughs> draw a line between what you were spending and what you were getting. And, <laughs> no. and I don't know whether this resonates with people listening to this, but your cloud bill is a bit like that now, Yeah, um, you know, where it's really hard. To understand the component tree. And we struggle and we're, you know, we have professionals on staff to understand and to model what our cloud costs are. So I think when you can as a vendor, which we are, you know, we, we try and be super transparent and make our cost models to our customers. In, in fact, you can actually see it in the product. You know, what am I spending? Um, you know, and you know, here's the price list. So that people just are not shocked by. 
the the money thing because you know I mean I'm live in America I'm an American citizen now but as you can probably tell by the accent um, there's a little bit of British in me and you know British people very famously don't like to talk about money uh, hmm. I think largely because we know where it all is the Queen's got it all the King's got it now. <laughs> um, you know, so you know we don't like to talk about money so you know, we like to get that unpleasantness out of the way and get back to the technology. That's funny. I, I appreciate that. And you're right. I mean, transparency is hard. We are getting there. I mean, this is some of the observability stuff, right? You, we're, yes. we're getting better and better at being able to know how much compute does this take? How much storage does that cost? Like all these little bits and pieces are really coming together quite neatly, which is really fascinating because w- once you can measure something, you can manage something. Until you can yeah. measure it, you can't really manage it. I'll throw it over to William for some uh, for some final thoughts here. I think the bottom line is, Get yourself some analytics, figure out something somehow, some way. You probably already have a license for Power BI. Use it. What do you think, William? Yeah, use it to to get some depth uh, out of your data, not just for your shallow queries that you've been doing for 10 years, but use it right. to go go deeper, do more. And then think about what did, what what are you going to do with that information? Can that be done in a more automated way? So I always say, wherever you're doing BI, think about AI. Because AI can go further, can incorporate other data sets, and can make more happen in real time. So I think AI is eventually replacing BI, and now's the time to start thinking about that. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I actually have uh, done a, a presentation on this topic of AI versus data warehousing. And it's not really versus data warehousing. And I'll kind of throw this out as my closing comment, and then podcast bonus segment is coming up next. Uh, data warehousing will always be around, I believe, in some shape or form, and it's going to be for your your really important numbers that you have to report to auditors, to financial executives, et cetera, where you really want clarity and certainty. And then AI, on the other hand, is going to be all about what you didn't think of and all these other things that that you would miss as a human being. And the way I describe it is the AI is one eye and the data warehousing is the other eye, and that gives you depth perception. Now you can actually see where things are because Folks who've studied this know if you don't have two eyes, you can't have depth perception, right? Unless you can use sonar like a bat and uh, just need to figure out through sound where that wall is coming so you don't run into it. Uh, but the, all these things are useful as signal, but it still takes the person to absorb all this, to understand, to know where to automate, when to automate, how to manage these things. It's all important stuff. Keep the human in the loop, folks. Podcast bonus segment is up next. You are listening to DM Radio. All right, folks, time for the podcast bonus segment here on a fantastic DM radio, talking to Amanda McCulloch from the Data Visualization Society, William McKnight, our analyst of the day, and also Phil T. from Moogsoft, our recovering astrophysicist. And uh, Amanda, I'll throw it over to you first. AI plus BI is really fantastic stuff. I mean, I played around with chat GPT, and what I figured out pretty quickly is, you know, if it can write in English, French, German, Russian, all these different languages, the corpus of words, terms, context, and syntax in human languages is a lot more complex or at least more complex than what you get in programming languages, which means ChatGPT should be able to code, and yes, it can. Now, it's not perfect, but it can actually build out code for you. Amanda, what do you think about the sort of nexus of AI and BI? So I think ChatGPT is a really nice, understandable example of where we can think about how do we integrate um, these kind of AI functions and these kind of opportunities for efficiencies into our workflows. 
there isn't any one single data visualization tool that's going to do all the things for you. Even the best developers who use a Tableau also use other things outside of it to prep the data and to bring in and create different visual elements. And so I'm really curious to see kind of what it looks like as we use tools like ChatGPT to deliver and generate more ideas around ways in which we can visualize data. Ask it a question, how do I visualize this kind of data set? It'll right. tell you not just the standard answer, a line chart, for example, for time series data, but it'll actually serve up and give you alternatives and say, or consider these. Now, I think it still takes that human in the loop to be able to say, and which of these is the best fit for my data, for my business, for my audience? And that's where I think there's still a great opportunity for BI developers and analysts to stay involved, even if we can experiment with these cool things, even over off in the world of, say, mid-journey for building really cool dashboard prototypes, which can be a fun place to play with different prompts, make a business dashboard in the style of Van Gogh's Starry Starry Night. <laughs> Why not? I, lo I love it. That's fantastic. And, and I think you're exactly right that really the power of AI for a good long time now is going to manifest in the form of suggestions saying, oh, what about this? What about that? Which is great stuff for the human mind, right? I mean, I'm a writer by trade. I know what writer's block is. It sucks. It's really hard to get out of it. You have to do things like play music or walk around or eat a sandwich or something just to kind of mess, mess things up and kind of shake up the, the cobwebs in your brain. But this chat GPT stuff is really interesting for getting ideas and suggestions and looking at things in new ways. So I think this AI plus BI is the future. William, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think what we're seeing is yeah, even us as technologists, uh, I'll speak for myself. I was, I'm floored by the capabilities of chat GPT. And, and I know that others are on the horizon and we're just seeing a wave of these types of technologies come out there. I don't think anybody has it figured out, you know, what this all means and where it's all going. I do see that we're able to give AI higher, more higher abstracted kinds of tasks and it can do it. And while we do have to keep the human in the loop, how long before we can say to AI, optimize my company for these types of benefits, more revenue next year. Right. And not only can it, make suggestions, but it can probably move a lot of that right into pro business processes mm -hmm. and automate the business process and almost automate the company uh, as a result. So uh, there's going to be a lot more, a lot of change. Uh, we've seen a lot of change and it's just, is it's, it's happening exponential to what we're used to. Yeah, that's right. And Phil, I'll throw it over to you and I'll throw one of my favorite other tech spaces at you, which is process mining. So you've got a number of different companies uh, doing some really interesting stuff in that space, which I think you add process mining in with AI and analytics, you've really got something very interesting going on where the AI can be working in the background all the time on trying to optimize how this architecture is set up because there's a lot of wasted time and energy. You talked about the, the sort of footprint, the carbon footprint of these things. That's a really big deal. So I, I'm very excited and, uh, and, and like uh, William, a bit bewildered by what we're seeing. What do you think, Phil? So I'm going to be slightly contrarian. Um, I'm not that impressed by ChatGPT. Um, <laughs> um, you have to understand what it's not. Uh, and it's not generating novelty. Uh, it is an incredible and extraordinarily impressive feat of engineering to create it. Um, but it is confusing people in thinking that it is being intelligent, and it really isn't. It, it's, it's, it, what it is is allowing connections between 
uh, seemingly disconnected bits of information put together. And of course, you know, it can do some really nice tricks. I'm reminded as a recovering physicist, um, you know, of an Einstein quote, imagination is more important than knowledge. Mm. Knowledge is limited, whereas imagination can encircle the earth. And ChatGPT is limited by its knowledge, uh, which is a very, very large corpus, um, almost the entirety of the internet. Um, But it is not going to uh, come up with, uh, you know, the leaps, the incredible, amazing leaps that human intelligence is capable of doing seemingly out of nowhere. Right. And, and I would say, let it be a great tool and let it be um, a great servant. But heaven forbid, if we try and let it be our master. Right. Remember what happened when our algorithmic trading first started out, almost the flash crashes of 10 years ago, sure. where you let robots make these decisions, you tend to get in those scenarios, catastrophic feedback loops. So, uh, you know, there you are. Maybe an unexpected opinion from somebody who spends his life in AI. No, I appreciate that. I think you're uh, you're spot on. And Amanda, final comment from you about ethics. We should do a whole show on ethics, but go ahead. I can't leave without thinking about it. And I think about I think about two things with AI that worry me a bit, and with things like ChatGPT, but also AI more broadly. And it's around security and around ethics. I think that uh, when you look at ChatGPT, and it can feel very inviting to go ahead and say, like, comment my code for me, explain my code in plain language. Don't go posting company code or company data into an open chatbot. It's a bad idea. Like you don't want to go feed that data and information there. And I think that those kind of mistakes will be made and by people who genuinely just don't know better and don't think through the implications of that decision of what they do with that company data. So think about security as you're thinking about security and privacy and keeping our data secure and private and not posting it in a public chatbot. And that's a behavioral thing that we have to learn our way through. The second area are the ethics components, which think about both how that knowledge and information is created. I mentioned things like mid-journey before and image generation. Well, those image libraries were were trained on a lot of data and images that people didn't necessarily give permission to have used for that purpose. Right. So how do we think about the ethics of how these tools are being created? And then how do we think about the ethics and the potential implications or harm that can be done when we allow them to make decisions for us or create content for us in different ways and shapes and forms? And I think that's the other place where I see the human in the loop to be so important with myself being a public health professional and data professional by training, we saw a lot of ways in which charts were used both to inform and to mislead throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think we always have to think about the fact that the charts and the graphs and the data and information we put out into the world has real world implications, either on our businesses and bottom lines, or on how we live our lives and the community kind of adoption we have of different prevention behaviors in the public health sphere. So let's think about the ethics and the security concerns that really are very sound and good to think through as we think about AI and its role in our BI type work. I love it. Great way to close the show, folks. We'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to DM Radio.